Jack of Cups, part two. Be signs in the sun, and moon, and stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, bewildered by the roaring of sea and waves. Before we left New England, I went out into the yard and dug up the bones of our family cat, a black cat, hit by a car and killed some three or four years earlier, afterward wrapped in an old bath towel and laid to rest beneath the daylilies crowded outside our dining room window. When it came time to move, we didn't feel right leaving him behind, not knowing who might move in next and disturb him, disinter him, digging in the wet black earth. It might as well be us. So when we drove to Alabama, there he was, his remains wrapped in plastic and tucked beneath the trunk mat beside the spare tire, like Joseph carried up from Egypt by the sons of Israel into the promised land, our kitty not laid to rest in Shechem, of course, but rather in the shade of the pines outside our new home on the island. The writer, Zora Neale Hurston, described in her work a hoodoo ritual she'd collected in New Orleans of a live black cat boiled down to its bones in an iron pot of fresh rainwater. Each bone of the cat then passed through the mouth until one tasted bitter. That bitter bone then kept and guarded as a most powerful magical talisman. Because sometimes you have to be able to walk invisible, her teacher told her. Some things must be done in deep secret, so you have to walk out of the sight of men. I remembered this admonition as I shoveled Alabama dirt over the remains of our own poor kitty. It struck me that among the implications of the black cat bone was not only the conjurer's concealment for the sake of unsavory deeds, for killing and thieving and sneaking about, but ultimately for when that root of malice had finally run its course, grown stale and unsatisfying. And so then all that might be left would be escape alone to vanish into the counsels of oblivion, to guarantee a deliberate unseeing of the self for the sake of final dissolution. In 2008, Lem Long, while awaiting trial for capital murder, wrote a short letter to the presiding judge. Dear judge, it read, my name is Lem Long. I have a request. Judge, Please approve I am plead guilty for what I have done that was the matter of killing my four children. From the day they died, I am no longer one to live, but I don't know how to die. Judge, please grant my wish. I hereby request the death penalty as soon as possible. This is my request. Laying aside the specifics of the criminal justice involved, Long's guilty plea, shortly thereafter recanted, his conviction and death sentence, that same conviction overturned on appeal only to be reinstated by the Alabama Supreme Court, his death sentence later reduced to life imprisonment. In all of this, amid calls from the community for propriety and process 
to be ignored entirely and vengeance instead articulated for maximum effect. For Lemlong to be staked out on a fire ant hill to be devoured for the pleasure of his screams, or shackled about the ankles and thrown from the Dauphin Island Bridge himself, or else publicly hanged in Bienville Square in downtown Mobile. Laying all this aside, consider his letter as being something more than it is, something darkly sacramental, an outpouring of meaning beyond the particulars of one man's confession. I am no longer want to live, but I don't know how to die. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report that in the past quarter century, the suicide rate in the United States rose nearly 40%, now over 48,000 deaths annually, one death every 11 minutes. This is mostly men. We make up half the population, but nearly 80% of suicides. Adjacent to this are other so-called deaths of despair, drug overdose or drinking oneself to death, for instance, nearly a quarter million every year. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, wrote Thoreau. Lord knows what sense he could have made of these dazzling years of decline in the 21st century. For in the midst of it all, in this our great apostasy, whenever it began, is a desperation, an annihilism, a self-hatred almost beyond reckoning, a blinding and a maiming fixed only toward self-slaughter. Not a nation reveling in its freedoms, but a nation plainly searching for its death. Adam, where are you? I heard you coming, and so I hid myself. My own grandfather died of drink and died young. He was diabetic, with poor circulation in his extremities, and because he didn't take care of himself, my mother told me, because he kept drinking despite his condition, she could, each night, as a girl, sitting in the living room of their apartment, watching television, smell his feet rotting, sweet and foul, as he lay asleep in bed nearby. He was a frustrated man, angry, mired in unsuccess. He loved history and had wanted to be a teacher, but instead worked most of his life as a clerk in a shoe factory. He left a scrapbook with handwritten tables of some old English words and their meanings in modern English and a list of chemical compounds with their common names and their formulas, even a small pencil drawing of Franklin Roosevelt and short poems of Fray Angelico Chavez. But we fell by slow degrees to earth as all men must, the red man back into the red, red dust. Beside them, he pasted illustrations clipped from magazines, an Aztec sacrificial stone, a Navajo weaver, a Hopi girl grinding corn. If there's one thing I could never understand, my grandmother told me many times, perhaps echoing something my grandfather had said, it's this country's treatment of the Indian. 
My grandparents were, by all accounts, unhappy people. It's simple in the memory of any such family to inflate uncomplicated sadness or regret into tragedy. The risk, of course, is in masking those moments of joy which were their own and did occur, a texturing that makes more poignant and more crucial the guiding rule of melancholy. But still, the stories pass down to us. As a Christmas gift, my mother told me, my grandfather once gave my grandmother an elegant red satin dressing gown bought at one of the big department stores downtown. When my grandmother opened it on Christmas morning, whether because of the expense or something deeper, I don't know, she said to him, exasperated, right in front of the children, Who do you think we are? Who do you think we are? She wouldn't wear it. She made him take it back to the store. My mother said her father was speechless. I have their wedding portrait from the Eames studio on West Central Street in Manchester, taken only a few years after the war, when Kerouac was first out on the road. My grandmother, wearing a delicate string of pearls, and my grandfather, a carnation through his lapel. For their honeymoon, they traveled out to the coast for the weekend, to Wells, Maine, and nine months later, my mother was born, the first of three children. I have another photograph as well of my mother's own wedding day, and in it, her parents are standing by her side, two decades older, but still together and smiling, if only for a few moments in May sunshine. I have to think there was some laughter in them, desire and hope, but hope often withers, and sometime within it all, my grandfather took a drink, and then another, and couldn't stop, or wouldn't, until the day he collapsed and died on his kitchen floor in 1971, six years before I was born. My grandmother lived another three decades without him, and I never thought to ask, and now will never know, on which days she felt regret, if at all, and might have remembered him fondly. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. Of course, Jack Kerouac, too, died of drink and died young. On October 21st, 1969, shortly after his disastrous appearance on Firing Line, like many a sensible New Englander before and since, Kerouac relocated to Florida, living there in a tiny house with his wife and invalid mother, desperately poor guzzling Falstaff beer and Johnny Walker red with a portrait of Pope Paul VI he painted himself hung on the living room wall. A local reporter visited Jack several times before his death and later published his memories of the writer's final days in the March 1970 issue of Esquire. There was never a time until the last one or two visits the reporter remembered when he didn't mention his loneliness. It was almost as if Kerouac, in the last years, had burrowed farther and farther 
back into his own personality, back into the dense-packed delights and detritus of a life, and then turned around and was peering out at the thronged world through the tunnel he made going in. Perhaps being back there clarified his sight in some ways, focused it more clearly on the things he could see. Perhaps it just gave him tunnel vision. I don't know. That same issue of Esquire, with actor Lee Marvin on the cover, contained a special section devoted to the disquieting darkness, a plague of hippie death cults and acid witchcraft, having recently overwhelmed American counterculture, especially in its spiritual heart, the golden state of California. We must face the possibility that California has allowed itself to become a principality of the devil, the magazine declared, and that the rest of the country is not far behind. For those were the days when strawberry fields gave way to helter-skelter, to Charlie Manson, the wizard beach boy Dennis Wilson called him, and his creepy-crawling trolls, when Armstrong and Aldrin on the surface of the moon one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, gave way to the Rolling Stones' free concert at Dick Carter's Altamont Speedway, where the Hell's Angels kicked and stabbed a man to death inside of the stage while the rock and roll blared and the cameras rolled. I imagined that my own life was simple and sweet, and sometimes it was, Joan Didion wrote describing the unraveling of those days in her essay in the White Album. But there were odd things going around town. There were rumors. There were stories. Everything was unmentionable, but nothing was unimaginable. This mystical flirtation with the idea of sin, this sense that it was possible to go too far and that many people were doing it, was very much with us in Los Angeles in 1968 in 1969. A demented and seductive vortical tension was building in the community. The jitters were setting in. Didion recalled that in August 1969, when news first broke of the murders at actress Sharon Tate's home on Cielo Drive in the Benedict Canyon neighborhood of Los Angeles, the early reports were garbled and contradictory. One caller would say, hoods. The next would say, chains. There were twenty dead. No, twelve, ten, eighteen. Black masses were imagined, she wrote, and bad trips blamed. I remember all of the day's misinformation very clearly, and I also remember this, and wish I did not. I remember that no one was surprised. There were six dead that night on Cielo Drive. Stephen Parent, Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, Abigail Folger, Sharon Tate, and Paul Polanski, Mrs. Tate's unborn son. Two more dead the following night at a house in Los Feliz, Lino Labianca and his wife, Rosemary. Across the living room wall, Above a framed portrait of Abraham Lincoln, one of Manson's girls scrawled, Death to Pigs, 
in Mr. Labianca's blood. A year earlier, on firing line with William F. Buckley, in the interludes between Kerouac's drunken outbursts, the writer Ed Sanders and the sociologist Yablonsky quarreled over the latter's descriptions of the counterculture. In writing his book, The Hippie Trip, an open-eyed, if over-credulous account of the beliefs, drug use, and sexual patterns of young dropouts in America, Yablonsky's fieldwork brought him in contact with several hippie communities throughout the country, wherein he rediscovered a basic and immutable truth. When lacking order and authority, more often than not, a human family collapses into violence. No human being has reached enlightenment till they can say fuck off to their mother or dad, one young man told him. That this declaration be not some pearl of great price, but rather a gateway drug toward filth, neglect, mayhem, rape, and eventually murder, seemed obvious, at least to Yablonsky, despite his sympathies for the movement's ill-defined ideals. While visiting the Morning Star commune in Northern California, Yablonsky encountered a little blonde child, about four, who was wandering aimlessly about and crying. It wore a long green velvet gown that was filthy. The pathetic baby had one shoe on and one shoe missing. No one seemed to pay any attention to it. It appeared abandoned. I went over and picked the baby up and hugged it, he remembered. I became aware that the child smelled badly from urine and feces. I hugged it again. The little baby and I looked into each other's eyes, and I'll never forget the child's simple words. I'm lonely. I asked someone about the child's parents and received a matter-of-fact reply that the baby's mother was out in the woods, freaked out on acid. But Ed Sanders, jousting on the firing line stage, thought Yablonsky's criticism too harsh, his sampling too selective. Ironic, given that Sanders himself, by decade's end, was startled into writing his own book about the Manson clan and their crimes, tracking down and detailing over the next year and a half each of what Sanders called Charlie's Sleezo inputs, trying to make sensible, rather than sensational, the slaughter. I wanted to demythologize the Manson thing, he later recounted. I wanted to depict it in all its boredom. It's a slow progression or transgression from the flower of 1967 to the pig of 1968 to the carnage of 1969, and I didn't want to make them heroes for anybody. But still, despite Sanders' efforts, heroes they became. As of this writing, one is still able to purchase online a veritable trove of memorabilia, priced for any budget, associated with these butchers. A lock of Manson's hair, or mounted on a handcrafted wooden base, a piece of the rock on which he sat while auditioning unsuccessfully for record producer Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, 
in the spring of 1969. And even a stock photograph of follower Lynette Squeaky Frome being taken into custody following her attempted assassination of President Ford in 1975, hand-signed in silver by Charlie himself, and available in four interest-free payments of one twenty-four seventy-five. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. In the face of such cruel distractions, I sometimes myself don't know what possible sense to make of these dazzling years of decline, except to say there is nothing new under the sun, or perhaps save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Or I could take a leaf from Kerouac himself, progenitor or prophet, however reluctant, of the mise-en-scene. Beware of false prophets, he declaimed from the firing line stage that night, who come unto you dressed in sheep's clothing, and underneath they are ravening wolves. But who's that? Ed Sanders asked in reply, earnestly and sensibly, unprepared, just oh so unprepared for what was on the way. But perhaps Kerouac phrased it most aptly in that latest of his novels, Vanity of Deleuze, widely regarded, by whom, I wonder, as his best. What possible feeling can be left in me for an America that has become such a potboiler of broken convictions, grandeur all gone into the mosaic mesh of television, where people screw their eyes at all those dots and pick out hallucinated images of their own contortion and are fed actung, attention, attention, instead of, ah, dreamy, real, wet lips beneath an old apple tree. Or that picture in Time magazine a year ago showing a thousand cars parked in a redwood forest in California, all alongside similar tents with awnings and primus stoves, everybody dressed alike, looking around everywhere at everybody with those curious new eyes of the second part of this century, only occasionally looking up at the trees, and if so, probably thinking, oh, how nice that redwood would look as my lawn furniture. Or even, I might add, Jack, five and a half decades later, in a nation still bent toward dissolution by this spirit of antichrist we just can't seem to shake. Oh, how nice that redwood would look as the handcrafted base of a genuine Manson family relic. A snow globe filled with tears of grief, perhaps, or a souvenir spoon dipped in blood. Where should this music be? The air or the earth? Sound sounds no more. Ensure it waits upon some god of the island. Living on the island, as the months passed, I tried still to make sense of intuition. This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, but found little real consolation in the books or the newspaper clippings. I met an elderly couple, together over sixty years, the first couple married after the island's first bridge to the mainland opened in 1955, named for Gordon Persons, 
a recent governor of Alabama, who outlawed flogging in the state's penitentiaries. Miss Eula was an islander by birth, from a long line of Malins, Colliers, Provitos, Sprinkles, Ladners, Bosarges, and all the rest. Her great-grandmother was sister-in-law to Aunt Bama, the prophetess. Eula remembered as a girl playing tag with the other island children at the tops of the live oak trees abutting the shell mounds, the children climbing from treetop to treetop along the fox grape vines draped on the forest canopy. She met her husband, Tommy, in 1953 or 54 at an island honky-tonk called Marcel's, near where the post office now stands, the building later repurposed as a Baptist church. But back then, Marcel had a jukebox running off a dynamo, and everyone danced to country music, to Hank Williams hollering, Kalija, or Webb Pierce singing, There Stands the Glass. Tommy was in the Air Force, stationed on the island to work on the crash boats in Mobile Bay. He said, back then you could walk the beach for days and see no one or nothing but cattle grazing the dunes. They married, began to raise a family on the island, three boys, the oldest of whom, Miss Eula, still brought a hot meal each midday. In September 1979, when Hurricane Frederick passed directly over the island and tore down the bridge, they were in a hotel room in Montgomery, riding out the storm, making their way back home, across the water, through the wreckage. They waited nearly three years for a new bridge to be built, that graceful arch from which Lem Long would someday throw his four children. And Miss Eula helped all the newcomers who'd moved on to the island in recent years adapt to the months of isolation and privation, passing down wisdom from the days before the bridge, like how to keep a kitchen outside or how to wash your clothes in rainwater because it lathers better. In the wintertime, many of the houses on the island sat empty, and it was often possible for me, just as Tommy had in the days before the bridge, to wander the dunes and the beach in solitude. But even in the quiet, an empty house was still a house, the burden of another's life and expectations, and not my own. And so one morning, I drove to where the roads and houses stopped, parked the car, and started walking westward along the strand into strange realms of light. I remember the dawn and a storm and a rainbow tasseled with lightning, a makeshift cross in the dunes trailing long grass leeward, a carpet of shells and jewels of sand, silver patches spotlit on the water, expectant as though from out the waves a goddess or an idol might emerge. Trash washed in at the edges, manscat carried by the tide, styrofoam and plastic cups, shredded plastic grocery bags, detergent jugs and water bottles, 
and even a broken cooler door with mailbox lettering advertising cold drinks at two dollars a pop. I walked for hours, and as I walked it was as though the island gave way beneath and the waves rushed in from either side to mingle into one, and I was there, alone, like Peter, stumbling on a foolish journey. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I walked and walked, and even when I had to turn and walk back to the car, even back at the house, it was as though I was still half-blinded by the light, the glare of light from the center of all things, from all flesh and stone and creeping green. But as the day wore on and closed, that light began to fade and disappear, to forget. We are nothing much, I think, birds' tracks overrun by wind and wave. Parents' Prayer, a poem by Leslie Clinton. When I am tucked in bed and drowsing, seize my muscles in a vice grip, bend my fingers into claws. Let my urine soak the sheets, let my vomit sour the air, slick my mouth with foam and make me gurgle, make me groan. Strike my limbs to make them limp. Crush my tongue between my teeth and coat my mouth with blood. Do my skin with sweat and rouse me in a fit of gibberish and guttural noise. Then send me lurching at the sharpest edges of the furniture. And when I gain full consciousness, fill me with an abysmal emptiness. Then leave the unremembered trauma lodged within me after morning breaks. Wreck my brain's potassium channels. Spike my neurons violently. Make my brain misfire, not his. Dear Lord, not his. Yonder, by the ever-brimming goblet's rim, the warm waves blush like wine. The gold brow plums the blue. The diver sunk, slow dives from noon, goes down. Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969, Joan Didion reflected. Ended at the exact moment when word of the murders on Cielo Drive spread like brush fire through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. This observation, while entirely appropriate for her essay's denouement, also raises a question of no little importance. If the 60s ended that day, what came next? To say simply August 10th or 
the 1970s, is to miss the point entirely. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, perhaps, but in the decade's aftermath, curled a long afternoon of ennui, the lethargy of which we just can't seem to shake. And this, while night approaches, approaches quickly. And what rough beast, we may imagine, now anticipates its bloody prowl. For Didion, the collapse of the narrative was precisely the point. What's left is the random, the non-sequential, the deliberate breaking apart of, as though for prophylaxis, those stories that allow us to live. But for many others, the aftermath was a matter of consolidating the brand, fixing and formulated phrases, the decade's madness in hopes of building from them a legacy. Witness Allen Ginsberg himself, ever the propagandist, discussing years later his friend Jack Kerouac's appearance on Firing Line in September 1968. From an anti-artist point of view, he said, it might have seemed like a disaster, but actually, as time goes on, Kerouac will look more and more interesting. The necessity to be polite on the occasion, the necessity to be rationally coherent and linear on the occasion, will fade, and the monumentality of Kerouac's drunken humor will emerge as a kind of tragicomic Rabelaisian beauty. That anyone could so quickly or could for so long ignore the obvious disasters of the past seems forced or willfully obtuse. But in a Vietnam of the mind, so to speak, victory is always right around the corner. Waist deep in the big muddy, as the song goes, the big fool said to push on. I prefer instead the hesitant Ginsburg, the almost honest Ginsburg, clearly troubled, sitting in the audience at the firing line taping, watching his old friend fall apart. Or perhaps even the Ginsburg of January 14, 1967, standing on the stage at the Human Bee Inn in Golden Gate Park, seeing the freak flag crowd staked out before him, and turning to the poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti to whisper, What if we're all wrong? In its March 1970 issue, in its section on California's decline into devil worship and hippie death magic, Esquire magazine wrote that, like all martyrs, Sharon Tate's talent was an excellence at dying. Dead, she is meaningful, serviceable to all, the first bona fide martyr to the evils of the new Hollywood. Alongside this startlingly ill-mannered pronouncement tucked between full-color advertisements for Seagram's whiskey and men's footwear, as if to render irrelevant any subsequent attempts at poor taste until the end of time, the magazine printed a small black-and-white photograph of the late Mrs. Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski, in a nude embrace. 
and my friends, these are the moments when words fail and only the wrath of God seems commensurate. But still, what next? In the summer of 2019, shortly before the 50th anniversary of the Manson murders, Quentin Tarantino released his ninth feature film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Following several characters through Los Angeles in the tumult of 1969, it includes a moving vignette of Sharon Tate herself, Sharon befriending a hitchhiker and picking up a gift for her husband before ducking into a theater for a matinee showing of The Wrecking Crew in which she starred alongside Dean Martin. And all of this with the audience knowing this isn't really Sharon Tate in 1969, but rather an actress playing Sharon Tate. But in the playing, the suspension of disbelief, allowing us to consider Sharon as she knew herself, alive, living in the world, with all its anxious expectation, a living, breathing person, and not as most remember her, butchered in her own home, alongside her friends and her child, her blood used to scrawl the word pig on her own front door. But then Tarantino pushes the scenario even further by having the killers told to go to Terry's old house and kill everybody in there, distracted from their intended target on Cielo Drive by the film's two fictional protagonists, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, a fading actor in its double, exemplars of old Hollywood, passé, men of white-hat westerns and of the West, in which encounter the Manson kids are simply obliterated in a barrage of ultraviolent glee that is the director's well-earned trademark. Shortly thereafter, Rick Dalton encounters Jay Sebring, unknowingly spared a brutal death that night, who, having heard all the commotion, asks Dalton quite sensibly, What the fuck happened? These fucking hippie weirdos, Dalton explains. They broke into my house. Is everybody okay? Sebring asks. Well, the fucking hippies aren't, Dalton answers. That's for goddamn sure. Then Dalton walks up to the house to join them for a drink. Sharon and Jay and the others. Those poor souls. The dead of August 9th, 1969. But in this celluloid fantasy, alive and well and living happily ever after in Hollywood. It is a scene of unmatched tenderness in American cinema and carries within it, as my wife remarked upon leaving the theater, something like the breaking of a spell. To say, even if only in fable, no, it didn't happen that way. Not this time. This time, when the hippie weirdos broke in, we were ready. For bear in mind that 
by taking the burden of violence on themselves, Dalton and Booth saved not only Sharon Tate and the others, but in killing the hippies, kept them from becoming killers themselves. Not only that night, but the night that followed, a burden perhaps greater than death. Consider Leslie Van Houten, who as of this writing was just paroled from a California state prison after a half century behind bars. Called Lulu in the family, she restrained Mrs. LaBianca on the night of August 10, 1969, while Mr. LaBianca was being stabbed to death and herself stabbed Mrs. LaBianca's corpse multiple times after the others had finished her off. Leslie Van Houten, whose own mother forced her to have an abortion when she was 17, and whom Charles Manson convinced a new life awaited her deep down in a bottomless pit in Death Valley, a pit to which Charlie had the key, and where he assured her she could, like a fairy, like an angel, grow wings. Back on the road, at a bar in San Antonio, across the street from the Alamo, no less. The bartender was a young guy wearing iridescent blue contacts and a pair of designer sneakers, one of many from his closet, he told me, that he said he always bought direct from a teenaged retailer in Taiwan. He was a proud Texan, as proud as any. He mentioned an uncle who worked for the cartels, a quiet kind of guy, but that this uncle would kill without question if need be, would do whatever needed to be done, man, woman, or child, even a newborn baby. And here the bartender mimed, picking up an infant by its ankles and shooting it through the head. It wasn't ever personal, he said, just business. I took a swallow of my drink and thought, you're shooting a baby. How could that possibly be anything but personal? Writers, Joan Didion admitted, are always selling somebody out. It's an unavoidable part of the vocation, if only because there's seldom many others wandering about taking notes on the scene and heard, whirring away at those incommensurable mysteries of God and man. And it's always personal, make no mistake. Everything I write is about Jesus, Jack Kerouac told the Paris Review only a few months before his disastrous appearance on Firing Line. The real danger in the work, though, is in mistakenly trying to give to the reader or the listener not an ending, but an answer, to fix in a formulated phrase the takeaway, the homily, the demands of the brand, which is to say, when it comes to anything, but especially the island, I can't, I won't, offer you much more than to say simply, we don't live there anymore. We stayed for as long as we could until the money ran out and the demands of a man with a family, a wife and children pushed us onward, back on the road, out here to the southern plains, to a new home in Oklahoma. And I still don't understand 
still was never able to plumb the depths of that intuition. This one at last is bone of my bones. And still don't know how we came to the island, nor why we had to leave. Just as I still don't understand why or how Lim Long could throw his children from the crown of the bridge, or what manner of God could allow such cruelty to happen in our midst. But this world, ultimately, is not to be solved, but rather pitied. The poetry is in the pity, at least until the last days when the sea gives up her dead. I was in San Antonio on pilgrimage to drive that afternoon an hour southwest of the city to a tiny Texas town called Dilly, mentioned by Kerouac in the final pages of On the Road. One night, just over Laredo border, he wrote, in Dilly, Texas, I was standing on the hot road underneath an arc lamp with the summer moth smashing into it when I heard the sound of footsteps from the darkness beyond, and lo, a tall old man with flowing white hair came clumping by with a pack on his back, and when he saw me as he passed, he said, Go moan for man, and clomped on back to his dark. I stood in the street in Dilly, underneath the broken traffic lights wrapped in tattered plastic shrouds, listening to the highway whine, and prayed my rosary, and prayed for Kerouac, and tried not to ask for a sign. Instead, I found myself remembering another man I knew growing up. He was chief of our volunteer fire department, and he was a pack rat. He collected everything. His backyard was piled with scrap metal and surplus lumber, broken machinery and car parts. Every summer, when the Carnegie Library in town had its used book sale, he showed up with his truck at the end of the day and bought whatever was left, no questions asked. The encyclopedias, the self-help pamphlets, the government forms, the obsolete computer manuals, all the books that no one else would want. He took it home and stuffed it inside his house with the rest of the junk he hoarded. When the house was full, he bought an old grange hall across the street and began to fill it up too. He also collected cats, dozens of them. He dumped food out in its backyard and they came to him from all over, like pilgrims creeping toward a shrine. Perhaps if he'd lived out on a back road, no one would have cared. But he lived downtown, in a neighborhood, on the hill above the grocery store. Eventually his neighbors were fed up, and they told him he had to do something about all the damned cats. So, without a better option at hand, at least in his mind, he coaxed most of them, the cats, not the neighbors, onto his enclosed front porch, ran a vent hose in from the exhaust pipe of the fire engine idling in his driveway and gassed them all to death. The entire town was horrified. Half the people because they couldn't imagine how anyone could do something so disgusting in his own house, no less, and everyone else because he did it with town equipment. This was New England, after all. After the cat massacre, the man was pushed toward retirement, 
and when finally done working for the town, spent his time doing odd jobs for people. He got a dog and took it everywhere with him. If you drove by while he was grinding out a stump or cleaning out a garage, you always saw the dog sitting in the front seat of his pickup truck, waiting. They were best friends. One day I was at the library with my mother and heard the librarian ask her, Did you hear? Winnie's dog died. Oh no, my mother replied. When? What happened? Last night. Just old age, I guess. I, of course, had an unkind, though understandable thought. Did the man, perhaps, help the dog along toward the undiscovered country? Not beyond the realm of possibility, of course, given the cats. I almost made a joke about it, but then noticed the real concern on the librarian's face. My mother said, He loved that dog. He must be devastated. He is said the librarian. I'm going to send him a card so he knows we're thinking of him. And they knew him, you see. And they knew as well how easy it can be to look at a person, look at the world, and see just one thing and let that one thing eclipse everything else. They knew they couldn't do that. It was every man after his desert, as Hamlet asked, and who should scape whipping. They knew that what they had to do was take the good and the bad together. And even if the bad obscured the good in the end, they had to take a step back and try to see things in perspective, to imagine what frail human beings might look like through God's eyes. So yes, he was a man who gassed all his cats to death. But he was also a man who showed up at the end of the book sale every summer and bought the leftovers no questions asked, and kept the library budget on track for another year. It was a man who'd do you a favor and cut down a tree or clean up your yard for a few extra dollars and a chance to keep busy. It was a man who got a dog because he was lonely and needed a friend, and now that friend was gone, and his neighbors recognized his suffering. They honored him at his best. We could do worse, could we not? As an antidote against despair? Go moan for man. And when the man's wife had a stroke a few years later, there was so much junk in the house, the ambulance crew had to throw much of it out onto the front lawn to get the stretcher inside. And when they cleared out the front porch, they found a few dead cats still hidden there, overlooked, now stiff and dried, mummified. At the bar in San Antonio, I moved toward a table near the window and opened my notebook, started gleaning images from the day's drive, harvest of a pilgrim road. The waitress who brought more beer saw me making notes and asked if I was a writer. I nodded. Yes. She asked if it was difficult. I couldn't think of a proper answer, so I just laughed and shrugged, took a drink. I asked about her, where she was from. She said Amarillo. She told me she'd had a bad year. 
her younger sister was dead, had killed herself on Christmas Eve a year before. She missed her every day, deeply. She said her kids kept her going throughout it all. You have to keep going with kids. But still, she couldn't understand it. She said she was going to wait a year, give herself time to think, then write it all down. Maybe that would help. Sure thing, I said. I think it would. This is Lidwine, Imagination for the Remnant, Season 1. Produced and directed by Brian Kennedy. Produced and engineered by Jonathan Hunt. With additional voice work by Rachel Kennedy and Keila Dawson. And featuring the music of the Cimarron Kings. For show notes and more information on how to support our work, please visit our website at lidwinejournal.org.
the difference between a country girl and an alligator man. 